Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He koonai pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I like our changing world. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. This week... We are off to visit a very big piece of equipment at the University of Auckland's engineering school. The kit in question is a wind tunnel, and it gets used for all sorts of investigations. The university says its boundary layer wind tunnel is the largest and fastest of its kind in New Zealand. They also have several smaller wind tunnels. These are the focus for plenty of research projects investigating the effect of aerodynamics on various objects, everything from buildings to Olympic cyclists and drones. To find out more, I'm off to meet mechanical engineer Rajni Sharma and some of the students involved with the wind tunnel, which is housed in a very large warehouse. This used to be where Dominion breweries used to be also located. used to make beer here. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So in the middle of this enormous warehouse space, you have a very long structure, slightly bellows-shaped because it's bigger at one end than the other. We've got a ducting system, which is a closed-loop ducting system, and there's a fan, and the fan then pushes the air around this duct. So what happens is that we have to um, slow down the flow in the enlarged section and then pass it through a contraction. By doing this, we are able to reduce the turbulence levels in the wind. And that helps us for aerodynamic studies that require clean air conditions. But because we've got this, if you like, a long ducting system, we can actually place um, roughness elements on the floor and generate what we call the atmospheric boundary layer flow conditions with specified levels of turbulence. Now someone's just turned off what was making that noise, so is this just a a little wind tunnel that was running here? Right, so alongside the big wind tunnel we have a little wind tunnel that allows us to mount small models and do testing and that enables us to utilise some probe-based instruments and allows us to resolve the flow field for smaller size experimental setup. Actually, how long is the wind tunnel? This is approximately 20 metres. And what speed winds can you create in there? We can control the the speed in the wind tunnel from very low speeds up to 20 metres per second. That is approximately 70, 72 kilometres an hour. Pretty windy. It is, it is pretty windy. Someone might ask that this is not a storm wind speed. Well, it's a fairly stormy wind speed, but not an extreme wind speed. But what we do is when we study the effect of wind storms is we rely on dimensional analysis. And we are then able to use non-dimensional parameters to scale the conditions 
And so we not only can scale the geometry and the, and the dimensions of the object of study, but we can also scale the speeds as well. And our data can represent conditions which are very windy as well. So we've, we've got established techniques for that. Now, speaking of scaling, there's something else that's caught my eye. So let's just walk okay. over here. Okay. So what I'm looking at is a polystyrene model that looks like an entire cityscape with big, tall buildings in it. Right. So, for example, if a new building is to come up in the city of Auckland, the council requires the developer to satisfy them that the new structure will not cause unnecessary wind speed-ups at pedestrian level. So we have a 1 is to 400 scale model of the city of Auckland, and um, that helps us to do testing quite readily uh, with anything that goes on in Auckland. I think we've made great strides in that area in the last 30, 40 years, and I'm thinking back to Wellington, for example, in the 1980s, and, and places it was so windy on the streets of Wellington that it would blow pedestrians over, and that doesn't happen anymore. They've sorted that one out. Well, there, there we are, yes. yes. So, so the wind tunnel is fundamental to bringing about the change. Thanks, Rajneesh. That was Rajneesh Sharma. Now, let's talk wind tunnels and drones with PhD student Nicholas Kay. So my current project is looking at the influence of turbulence on a small unmanned aerial vehicle wing. So most people know of drones as quadcopters and aircraft like that. But what is not so publicly aware are fixed wing UAVs, which have been developing since the 90s as everything gets smaller. And they're really good for when you need long range for things like surveillance. And so... I'm looking at UAVs of that type, basically small aircraft of about two metres wingspan, an example of which is Kahu, which we're fortunate to have in the lab at the moment. So it's a Defence Technology Agency UAV? So this aircraft was developed by the Defence Technology Agency of New Zealand Defence Force in the early 2000s, and it's mainly used for things like photography and surveillance. And it kind of was the start of our adverse weather research as we got a wing in 2015, for looking at icing building up on the wing. So as you fly, you get ice building up. So we test that in wind tunnel, and it's grown since to involve more icing projects and now turbulence, which is what I'm looking at with a two-dimensional aerofoil section. Explain to me how you're going about your work. So for my work, I have two-dimensional test wings, and so I push them in the wind tunnel, and I assess it at flow speeds relevant to a small UAV like Kahu. And I see how the flow changes over wings as we introduce unsteady turbulence in front. So turbulence is irregular motion as you pass through the air. If you think on an aircraft when you're flying, you hit turbulence and you can feel the aircraft is shaking about everywhere. So that sort of regular motion carries down to small scales. If you think on smaller aircraft, you feel turbulence more. Small UAV, a lot lighter, a lot slower, it feels it even more. And so we're looking at how those extreme changes in the flow interact with the wing to see are we going to lose lift, are we going to potentially lose control, is something serious going to happen in terms of the structural response of wing, is it going to be safe to fly? Yeah, that thing with turbulence and plane wings is interesting. So I live near Wellington Airport, yep. and if it's a calm day, you can see vortices on the water that have come yep. off the tips of the wing. So there'll yep. be this long line of vortices still swirling in the water for about five minutes after yep. the plane has passed. Yeah, so those are wingtip vortices. There's a lower pressure on top of the wing, higher pressure underneath to generate your lift. But at the wingtip, that pressure field can spill over, 
and that's inducing the vortex motion in the wing tip. On my test wing, we don't see that because we've got... Because you've got no end. Yeah, we've got, we've got no end. <laughs> so it's effectively a two-dimensional test with a plate at each end to suppress those vortices which lose lift and add other effects, which we're not really looking for in this case. We're just looking at the section. Where small aerofoils, like on a UAV, small UAV, get interesting is on a large aircraft, the boundary layer is what you call turbulent. It can go in all directions. And that's a fairly high drag case, whereas a small UAV... It's more smoothly layered, it's at a low Reynolds number, which is how we non-dimensionalise the flow speed and aircraft size. And what that means is it's a low energy flow, so it easily comes off the upper surface of the wing and then can reattach, forming a separation bubble. And the separation bubble really depends on how you're flying the aircraft, as well as its wing geometry, and also the onset flow. So in clean flow, we look at the wing, we're probably going to see a separation bubble, it's going to be inducing a good amount of lift, a little bit of drag, and then if we disturb that, it's probably going to increase its drag and the lift is going to change as well. So we're looking at exactly how that interacts and how those forces change. How do you visualise that in the wind tunnel? Because it's invisible. So you're trying to visualise these invisible things. Yeah, so visualisation isn't the key part. I'm mainly working with the pressure measurements. For visualisation, we have a fog rake. So as basically like a comb except out of the ends of each bit of comb you're having jets of fog come out like you'd have at a disco and what that allows us to do is if we mount a camera above the wing and put some light through the fog sheet we can see how the air is moving over the wing it's no longer invisible to us. You usually use pressure sensors? Yes so on my test wing there's an array of small holes. Oh I see those yep. yep so there's 75 on this particular wing and they connect to the flexible tubing, which you can see coming out the bottom. Oh, you've got a rat's nest of flexible tubing. <laughs> yep, well, it's 75 tubes. And then that we connect to one of our pressure modules, and from that we can detect what pressures are where on the wing. And so we can see the wing is generating lift, where is this lift coming from, and are there any unusual flow effects like the separation bubble and what's happening with it, what frequencies. So normally we'll see up to 400 hertz, any fluctuations across the wing. Out of this, you end up with a whole lot of numbers. A whole lot of numbers and a whole lot of plots. <laughs> and then do you do what with all those numbers and plots? So basically, we're trying to link them all into a model so that we can predict if your aircraft flies through this level of turbulence at this Reynolds number, is it going to be safe to fly? Is it still going to generate enough lift? Are you going to be able to successfully complete the flight with UAV? And if you're designing a UAV for such conditions, what sort of aerofoil should you be looking to use? So we're just quantifying really how all that performance changes and then writing it up into a nice long thesis. I could imagine that Wellington, just going back to that again, since that's where I'm from, would be a very challenging place to fly a drone like this because it would have yeah. a lot of turbulence a lot of the time. Well, it's not just turbulence down Wellington. There's also a lot of gusting and wind shear coming off the mountains because Wellington Airport, it's between obviously two sets of hills that does make things rather lively down there. But at least you don't have so much icing to worry about for small UAVs down there. Thanks, Nicholas. That was PhD student Nicholas Kay. And icing, and we're talking about frozen water here rather than cake frosting, is the topic of Naylin Oo's PhD. OK, so this is the same UAV um, yes, that Nicholas same, is working on? Yeah, it's the same UAV. And with I've a different the, problem. <laughs> yeah, with a different problem. He's looking for turbulence and I'm looking for the icy condition. So as you see, right, there's uh, ice here on the leading edge. Um, so it's kind of rough, like you 
basically change the shape of the airfoil and then when you fly the aircraft on that condition like you get a chance to crash it easily. Okay, so yeah. it's not just the weight of the ice building up on the wing, it actually changes Changing the turbulent the, flow. Yeah, it changes the profile of the aerodynamics, how it behaves around the wing, it totally changes it. Just having a little ice on the leading edge. Okay, so your wing model, yes. you've modelled yes. this rough edge as if it had ice on it. Yes, this ice was uh, generated at uh, Canada, at Icing Tunnel, and it was according to the standard of FAA. Okay, so what do you do with that wing? Um, so I got wing, so I got uh, two, two types, like one, I got pressure taps uh, on the wing, so I measure the pressure and how the pressure behave uh, having the ice on the leading edge. And also uh, we got some high frequency signal. For that case, I use microphones, yeah, and to measure the high frequency oscillations generated from the ice. So you got some nice measurements? Um, yes, as far as uh, I see, I'm getting really reliable results so far. I'm still processing the data. And so what are you going to do with that data? So we'll get the uh, aerodynamic uh, flow instabilities generated from the ice and it will help to improve their further control for the UAVs so we can fly better and safely uh, over the icy condition. Thanks, Naylin. That was Naylin U. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. We're finding out about research at the University of Auckland's Wind Tunnel and Rohan D'Souza has recently completed a PhD on a tiny device that he has big hopes for. In my PhD I've been working on an ultra-microscale gas turbine which is pretty much a miniature power source for portable electronic devices. So it might be something that if I was in a remote situation, I could use it to charge a phone? Is it that kind of thing? So what it is, it is to not charge a phone, it's to replace a battery. So instead of a battery, I would put my little device in there. What it is, is the world nowadays, we are getting the coolest technologies with the smallest iPhones and all these phones, but the power capabilities are so much, but the energy source is still the same. So... That's why we keep on running out of charge, or we have to charge it constantly. So the idea is to invent a new power source, in which case we don't have to do the same thing, because the batteries have very high power densities, but the energy density, in other words, they don't last duration. The duration is very short, so that's my full idea of my project. Okay, so what have you got there to show me? This is my ultra-microscale gas turbine, so this is just my deconstructed turbine housing, so... That's the inlet to my turbine, that's my nozzle guide vanes, and that's my rotor. So what that does is it's pretty much, it's like a jet engine on an aeroplane. But what it does, instead of producing thrust, I use the rotation to produce electricity. And, yeah, pretty simple. I can produce about 200 watts, and it's very tiny. So what size is it? The size of my rotor, which is the main thing, it's 2 centimeters, the diameter of my rotor. And I'm producing watts, a power range of 0 to 1,000 watts, whereas your, your engines, your gas turbines, produce megawatts, but they're in the meter range. So although these produce a lot less power, but their size, the power-to-weight ratio, they're about 1,000 times more effective than your airplane. So they're very light and produce a lot of power, which is very essential for your little devices. Okay, so for, from something that's basically just the size of the tip of your thumb... That's enough power to, to power something like a phone? 
Oh, more than enough for a phone. It can power this little aircraft over here. Oh, so it could make the whole UAV fly? It can make the full UAV flight. So I'm still struggling with parts and things at the moment because at these sizes we have other complications like we have to spin at RPMs of 500,000 and then bearings become challenging and heat transfer becomes challenging and we have all these other issues developing that have to be worked on. They're not impossible, they have to be worked on. But I can power stuff like your lime scooters and your electronic bicycles with these big chunky batteries. I can replace it with my little toy over here. So it's very promising. So how do you get enough wind flow going through that to, to basically get it up to speed to generate power? So the ultra-microscale gas turbine comprises of six components. It has a compressor, it has a combustor, it has a turbine, it has an electric generator and the bearings. Over here, I've just tested the turbine with, with compressed airflow. The next step, I'm working with students from part four projects and I'm c- coupling it to a combustor. After that, we'll go to the compressor, so the compressor will first compress the air, so the generator will initially get it started, but I'm not there yet. So I'm just testing one component, and it works well. So you're happy with the concept? Oh, I love the concept. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. It, is, it has a lot of potential, and it can be used for so many things like laptops and everything. So, yeah, it saves us a lot of time for charging and things like that. It's very versatile because it's, it's a power source. Essentially, it's just a power source that runs on gas. So it's like a little car engine that doesn't need to be charged up. So it's, yeah, I'm very happy. When you say gas, what kind of gas? Oh, that's a very interesting question, yes. So we had a PhD student who just recently finished about two years ago, and he tested the combustor with, I think, vegetable oil. So it's actually quite versatile. So it's very environmentally friendly as well. God, it could maybe one day run on used chip oil or something. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I saw his bottle of canola oil downstairs for his combustion. I was taken back. So, yes, that's the biggest thing, not just miniature power sources, but going green at the same time, which is, well, what New Zealand is all for. So, yeah. Thanks, Rohan. That was Rohan D'Souza. And finally, in our wind tunnel feature, we meet Ahmed Zeki, who is looking at an old building design from the Middle East, known as a wind catcher. Wind catchers are a way of cooling and ventilating buildings that is quite different from modern air conditioning. I'm a PhD student here, working on natural ventilation, and I'm reviving ancient ways to study ventilation. Air conditioning is, is not ventilation. The ventilation is, is usually associated with opening the space. It's, it's connected with the external environment air. It's cheaper, it's, it's free, you don't pay anything unless you're using some mechanical methods to enhance the air movement, for example, like fans and ventilators. So the wind catchers are completely passive. This model, for example, is based on an ancient real school in, in Iran. There are multiple shapes and types of wind catchers. It's a tower attached to the building and it can have multiple openings, multiple ducts, but this one is only have two ducts. It's two-sided wing catcher, so one here and one at the back. They are isolated between a wall inside them. So it's a bit like two chimneys in yeah, a way. Exactly, yeah. It's a, it's like a two chimneys in a way, yeah. And the tower has openings, and, for example, one catches the air at higher altitudes. That's why it's called wing catchers. It's a, a literal translation from its Iranian name. They call it boat gears. I think, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. And... Uh, it catches the wind and it allows it to enter the, the building and cross-ventilate through the room. It works very well with windows. So there is a window here 
and since this is a two-sided wing catcher at the back there is the other the other chimney or the other duct it it allows the air to exit or the the consumed air to exit because when the air is consumed it becomes hotter and the density of this air uh, reduces and it floats on the top so it exits like a chimney effect now wind catchers can have many many openings to catch the wind from multiple directions at the same time which enhances or increases the ventilation but at the same time when they started designing it they realized when they increase the openings the sensitivity of of the air entering the building reduces so it becomes less sensitive as 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 you put more ducts or chimneys to the building but it it, it doesn't have a fixed rule because it depends on the location geographical location air temperature the location of the building and how how it's related to the surrounding terrains this is a design that might work well in one place and so what you're saying is the principle is very effective but you might have to fine tune it for the particular environment into which you are putting a building yes yes it's working fine but the problem is whether it will work fine in this particular place with this particular weather or not one of the uh, concerns is cold climate because sometimes if it's open and ventilating in winter, it will start overcooling the building. And that's why modern wind catchers have controllers, dampers, heaters, so you can allow the air to enter with, with specific rates and it, it gets heated slowly and then it, it, it warms and ventilates at the same time. It's still cheaper compared to completely using a 100% heater or air conditioning system. It's cheaper because it's... It's a mixture between two systems. It's a hybrid system. So you put this in the wind tunnel to test it so you can vary the wind speed, you can vary the, the direction a little bit so you can offset your building to the wind direction? Yeah, I measure at various speeds at specific orientation and then I fix the speed and then I start changing the orientation. The orientation represents the different wind directions entering from different sides of the building. So now we are trying to use the modern wing catchers, which are built with cheaper materials like metallic sheets or whatever they use now. It's a great idea. It's, it's an old <laughs> idea, so that's why we are trying to implement it in a modern way. So. so it's a bit more sophisticated, though, than me opening a window on one side of my house and a window on the other side of the house and letting the air blow through. It's exactly the same concept. When you open a, a window on one side and you open the other at the other side, across the room or the, the house, so that's called cross-ventilation. You allow the air entering from one side and cross-ventilating and sweeping all the residuals, the consumed air, and from the other side. So the wing catcher combines two concepts, the cross-ventilation concept, which you just said, and the other concept is the change in air temperature. So the air, when the air heats due to consumption it becomes lighter and the catcher, the tower, starts collecting the, the heated air and replacing it with heavier air, which is the cooler air. So heavier air, the cooler air, starts flowing down and the lighter one starts exiting from different ducts because it has multiple ducts. And Iranian people were really, really good at building wing catchers. They have beautiful designs, they have multiple openings, but... For, because I'm from Egypt, so in Egypt we have it, but it's it's very simple. They're only single-sided and just depend mainly on cross-ventilation. Thanks, Ahmed. 
That was Ahmed Zeki, and like everyone in this story, he's in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Auckland. And that's us for tonight. To listen again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. As well as a written feature and photos, you'll find a link to a previous Our Changing World story about testing umbrella designs in a wind tunnel. If you're a podcast listener, you can also find us on most apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. My other podcast, Elemental, is celebrating 150 years of the periodic table, and it's up to potassium and praseodymium. Don't forget, Conservation Week is on, and there are activities on around the country that you can get involved in. It runs until Sunday, the 22nd of September, and the Great Kereru Count is running from the 20th to the 29th. It's a citizen science project to see if Kereru numbers are going up or down. Every count helps, including zero counts if you don't see any birds. I'll share links on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. And just before I go, I'd like to acknowledge two stalwarts of marine conservation here in New Zealand who have died recently, Wade Doak and Roger Grace. They both taught us a lot about underwater life and the value of marine reserves. Thanks for listening. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Paitopo. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.